Good morning. Good morning and happy Easter Sunday to you. Now, I grew up in the Anglican Church and whenever it comes around to Easter Sunday, we always open the service by saying, Christ is risen. And then the congregation responds, he is risen indeed. Hallelujah. So why don't we do that? Wherever you're sitting, wherever you're listening, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. That's good news and it's true news. What does it mean for us? What does it mean that Jesus died and rose again on the Thursday? Thursday, third day. Uh, that's the question we've been asking over the last few weeks. What does the cross and resurrection mean? Um, we've been thinking about this picture a couple of times of a beam of light hitting, do you remember from your physics experiments at school, hitting, um, what's it called, a triangle prism of glass. And as that beam of light comes in, that prism scatters the light into all the different colours that make up white light. Uh, so you can see them, you can study them, you can write them down, you can try and um, use them and manipulate them and understand a bit better what that light is all about. Well, the, the cross is a little bit like that. It's the picture we've been thinking about. The cross is this beam of glorious light shining in the centre of history. But what does it mean? What does it mean that that man, God's son, died in human history, really had a body, really poured out his own blood, really breathed his last, really cried out, it is finished. What does that mean for us? And three days later, after they laid him in the tomb in the garden, that they came back early on the first day of the week, and it was empty. And there were angels there saying, didn't you see it coming? He promised when he was with you in Galilee that on the third day he would rise again. Well, what does that mean? It's something remarkable. It's something that we celebrate Easter by Easter, something that's kind of been in the background in the water of our culture for centuries now. But what does it mean? Well, we've been thinking about how Christ's cross takes our shame away, how, um, how Jesus brings forgiveness to us and offers his hands to us, welcoming us home in reconciliation. Well, today we're going to think about a bit of a different way of thinking about it, and that is victory. That the cross and the resurrection show Jesus's victory over sin, victory over Satan, and every evil power in this world, and victory over death itself, that final last enemy. Sammy read to us these words from 1 Corinthians 15, starting down from 50 or 51. Uh, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable and will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, he's talking about our bodies, coming back to life, to a new kind of human life, resurrection life that Jesus enjoyed, bodily, physical, but imperishable, ready and fitted for heavenly living in the new creation, the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your sting? Sorry, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I wonder what's the best insult you've ever heard. I think this has got to be up there, isn't it? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Where, O oh death, is your victory? Well, I came across a list recently of um, kind of famous 
clever insults. Let me give you a few of them. See if they can measure up. Oscar Wilde said of somebody, some cause happiness wherever they go, others whenever they go. See if you get that one. Um, I've just learned about his illness. Let's hope it's nothing trivial. Um, that's a good one. He is simply a shiver looking for a spine to run up. I thought I enjoyed that. Here's one, Winston Churchill and George Bernard Shaw exchanging letters. George Bernard Shaw, a famous playwright, he wrote to Winston Churchill and said, I'm enclosing two tickets to the first night of my new play. Bring a friend if you have one. And then Churchill responds, Apologies, I cannot possibly attend first night. We'll attend second one, if there is one. I enjoyed that one. I wonder if you can think of some good insults. Um, insults for other people. Well, this is Paul loving the fact that Jesus has won victory over death, even death in all of its horror, that he just bubbles over with insults. I almost hear the voice of Nessa from, um, um, what's, that, what's that show called? Gavin and Stacey, Nessa going, oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? I can't do that voice very well, but maybe you can have a go. Um, death is swallowed up in victory. You see, Jesus has won some kind of victory over the cross, uh, at the cross, over death over Satan, over sin. But what does that look like? Well, let's try and work our way through this passage a little bit further. Look at that, verse 50. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, there's a problem with this world. There's a problem in our bodies. There's a problem in our hearts, in our minds, in this whole cosmos, in this whole world as it is at the moment. It's perishable. It's mortal. It's stained by sin and darkness and mess. We feel shame. We feel guilt. We feel it almost sticking to us like a sickness, almost pouring out of us like the most horrible things that pour out of our bodies, a picture of what sin is like, that our, our bodies are infected with it, that our world's infected with it and is under this strange cloud of darkness. Isaiah. Isaiah is the guy who wrote that line originally. Death has been swallowed up in victory in verse 54. That's from Isaiah. He calls death a blanket, like a great heavy quilt that pulls and rests and especially as you get older, seems to affect and infect every moment of life. Every joy seems to be passing. Every day passes faster. Every year marches on and death creeps up closer. It's an enemy. Sin is the thing that makes it scary. That's what he means when, this, when he says in verse 56, the, sin of the sting of death is sin, is that death would, I don't know, I guess it wouldn't be particularly scary if, you weren't, if we didn't know in our hearts that we were going to face God on the other side of it. If, if we knew we were going to face him carrying all of this disaster, all of this failure, all of this sin that we have. And so death stings because we know it's the end of life. It's the end of living the way that we want to. It's the end of happiness and joy and and just being is good, isn't it? Death brings an end to, our, to that, but then sin comes in and, and gives it an even worse sting. That we're going to have to stand before God. And the power of sin is that God is good. It's that he has this law that is, reflects his character, his being, his goodness, his righteousness. We don't measure up to that. We're dirty. We're stained. We're infected. We're infested with sin and with darkness and so with death. And there's a bit of a cycle there, isn't there? We live in this world that's dying because of sin. 
And because it's dying, kind of spiritually turned away from God, then we continue sinning. And because we continue sinning, we continue dying. And because we continue dying spiritually, we continue sinning. And it's this awful cycle that we're caught in. And so I declare to you, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood, he's not talking about bodies, as in um, thinking that heaven is a way of escaping our bodies into some spirit world. He's not thinking that at all. He's talking about flesh and blood as this sin-infested stuff that we have around us and in us. Flesh and blood can't inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is good and pure and beautiful. And we're not fit for it. Like turning up to a party where you're in the wrong clothes. Turning up to a club wearing trainers. You're not going to be allowed in. You're not fit. You're not ready. So something marvellous. Something completely unimaginable. Something you would never expect. A mystery has to be revealed to us. God has to come and do something new. We, we would never have guessed. And so Paul says, thank God, he doesn't finish in verse 50. He says, 51, listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. And if you know Handel's Messiah, then this next line rings in your ears. The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, incorruptible, imperishable, and will be changed. So there is a change coming. There's a new change of clothes. You can be fitted out, kitted out, prepared and ready. I mean, not just your with actual physical clothes over your body, but new flesh and blood, new body like Jesus had walking out the grave on that first Easter Sunday morning. A new body that's heavier, that's so heavy and weighty and real and solid that you could just walk through walls as if they're made of mist so real that he could eat fish and drink and speak and love and embrace and forgive and yet he would never die again a body that was raised changed in the twinkling of an eye can you imagine that moment nobody saw it except the angels at the moment in the tomb when jesus is cold wrecked bleeding brutalized body begins to warm up again when his pierced heart somehow heals and begins to beat again and blood begins to rush around his veins and down to his fingertips and somehow he passes through gets out of those grave clothes tidily folds them up with divine power blows the tombstone away from that tomb and walks out walks out into a new dawn, a new dawn for history, a new dawn for humanity. He's the first one out of the resurrection. A little bit earlier in this chapter, Paul calls them the first fruits, like that first strawberry that ripens in the patch, or that first apple from the tree, that first bite of that fresh batch of brownies that you made, and you know the rest of it's going to be good. What is Jesus? He's the firstborn from the dead, and there's plenty more that are going to follow. Lots of apples to come on that tree, lots of strawberries from that patch, lots of people who are going to walk through death and out the other side because Jesus, Jesus is not just the saviour. He's not just the forgiver. Jesus is the champion. Jesus is the victor, the winner, the one who's crushed death, that final enemy, the one who's pulled out Satan's teeth. Satan's bitten him bitten him on the heel as God promised he would right back at the beginning of Genesis, bruised his heel, but in doing so, 
Jesus has crushed that serpent's head. So Satan's done away with. And then sin, well, sin is in the rearview mirror too. It's passed away. Now, how does that work? Well, let's try and work our way through them. Sin, Satan, and death. Let's go in that order. How does Jesus defeat sin? How does he defeat death? How does he defeat um, Satan? Satan, or what did I say? Sin, um, Satan, and then death, that last enemy. So sin, how does Jesus defeat sin? This kind of stickiness that we have in us, this desire that we have to turn away from God, to do pretty much anything that doesn't fit with what he wants us to do, to live according to our own way, and to walk away from him and do what I want to do with my life. How does Jesus defeat sin? Well, sin is something um, that we're tempted towards when we believe that God doesn't love us. That's how it began back in Genesis. Um, sin comes, uh, Satan comes along and he whispers lies to Adam and Eve and says that God doesn't really love you. God doesn't really have what's best for you. He, he, he just thinks you're a piece of dust. I mean, he made you from the dust anyway, didn't he? Uh, so just take that fruit. Do what you want. God doesn't have your best interest at heart. And so they do. They take the fruit. They eat it and they turn away from God and start believing that he doesn't love them. And all of the rest of sin flows from that, from disobedience, from rebelliousness, from wanting to live our own way rather than God's way, from unbelief, from kind of not trusting that God is who he says he is, who he really is, deciding to believe ourselves or to believe Satan. And so we do what we want. We disobey and we turn away from God. But there's one person who's walked in the world who's never done that. His name was Jesus. He was the only true son of God. He was like a new Adam, Paul says in Romans 5. A new Adam who's born into the world, who goes about his life from a young age all the way through to his 30s, all the way through without sinning at all, never turning away from God, always going to him in prayer, always living his life, obeying his father, speaking, doing, thinking things that are in line with God's will, with his law. He lives this perfect life and then he dies. It's a really strange thing because Jesus says, nobody can take my life from me. So why on earth does he die? He doesn't deserve to die. He's the only one that sin has never infected. And so why does he die? Well, he dies to carry our sin with him. There's a verse in 2 Corinthians that says, Jesus on the cross became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. So there's this kind of swap that takes place, that God gives Jesus all of our sins and he takes them away. It's a little bit like going up to an airport security scanner. Have you ever been to one of those and you have to put your rucksack down and take your shoes off and your belt off and give them your wallet, make sure you've got no metal or liquids on you in your pockets or anything like that. You put everything through the scanner and then that dreaded moment when they pull your bag aside and they start to open it and look through all of your stuff and you're embarrassed. All the stuff that you thought was private, that was tucked away in this bag of your own personal possessions begins to be put on display for the whole of the airport to see. Imagine if someone did that with your life. It'd be even more embarrassing than someone pulling out your underwear or your... A uh, rusty razor or that book that you had thought was just between you and yourself <laughs> that you didn't want anybody else to see you reading. It would be way more embarrassing if somebody did that with your life. With all the stuff that we keep in the darkness of our own hearts. But what has Jesus done? He's come to you and taken your rucksack 
that's full of all your most embarrassing things, all of your darkest habits, all of your sins and failures. He's taken that rucksack off your shoulders, put it on himself, and then died with it, taken it far away and sunk it into the deepest part of the sea. So he's taken our sin away and gotten rid of it. What does that mean? He's defeated sin because sin stands over us. Sin weighs us down. Sin keeps you from taking that flight. Sin sin shows you who you really are until Jesus comes and takes it away and makes you new inside. Comes away and defeats all of that old you. Wins a victory over the um, the accusation and the darkness and the weight that was over you. So Jesus defeats sin, takes it away. And death as well. See, these things are all really linked together. It's hard to pull them apart, but we're having a go. So sin is defeated. Now when God looks at you, the clothing image, right, that you're changed, that he gives you something new to wear is a really helpful one there. Gives you his new rucksack, full of all Jesus' good deeds, all of his wonderful beauty. Clothes you in his perfect righteousness. So when, when he looks at you, you're dressed and ready, ready for his presence. So sin's taken away. What about death? Well, the wages of sin is death. And Jesus has come and done a deal where he's taken those wages. He has signed on the dotted line and taken that check, taken those wages into his account and died that death. And so death itself is embarrassed now. Death has got no more power anymore. Death is wandering around lonely, sitting at the bar in your local pub with just a pole where his scythe used to be and with a kind of depressed and lonely look on his face. And you can imagine people going up to this sad, lonely death guy looking uh, looking lonely at the bar and asking him about life. And he would reminisce about all the great power he used to have, about all the people he used to keep in chains of gloomy darkness, about all of the exploits he used to do, taking millions of people all at once to their deaths in great wars and famines and sicknesses and disasters. And now here's death all alone, sitting at the bar, reminiscing about his former power because he doesn't have any anymore. And so you can hear Paul say, come on then, death, do your worst. Where's your sting? Jesus has been raised through death. You did your worst for three days, tried to keep him rotting and mouldering in the grave and you couldn't hold on to him. It was like he was slippery, coated with butter or something. You hands couldn't grip onto, onto Jesus. Slips out of death's grasp because he's paid. He's paid sins, wages, paid it all. It really is finished. And so death has no hold on him anymore. He's blunted that scythe. He's retired death. <laughs> he's killed death. All that he has now is to sit there and hear the football fans singing you're not stinging anymore something like that the sting of death is sin sin's gone the power of sin is the law well Jesus filled it up completed it did all the good that we could ever be asked to do and then died in our place and rose for our hope you see if you trust Jesus if you trust Jesus what has happened to him has happened to you and will happen to you, that you've died, your old self is gone and sin has been washed away, that the new you has been implanted in your heart by his spirit, the power of his resurrection. Jesus became a, a new body, right and bright, clothed in immortality, swapped the mortal for the immortal, 
changed in that tomb. And one day you'll be changed too. Your heart's already been changed if you're trusting in him. Your heart's already started on that process. And one day it'll work from the inside out and you will be fully changed completely. And so death will have no hold over you because Jesus took your death for you. So mock it. Imagine that day when, like it says in 1 Thessalonians, we'll be caught up. Those who've died, who've been in the grave, they'll come out of the grave. And those who are still alive, who haven't yet fallen asleep, all of us will be caught up into the air. Not in some weird rapture thing, but in a kind of victory procession where we rush out of the city and go to meet the great conquering king and welcome him back home to his throne where he'll rule forever. We'll be caught up with him. And imagine as you look back, if you're one of the ones who's died at that point, look back to your grave empty, dug up, no more you in there anymore. And you'll see the great hurricane of God's goodness and grace sweeping over the land, changing everything in the twinkling of an eye, filling up every grave and planting flowers there instead, filling up all those horrible tombs and, and forming gardens and beautiful places where you'd want to go and spend time thinking about how God has made all things new. Imagine that, being caught up in the air, looking behind, seeing those graves empty and then filled and then mocking death and saying, come on then, you did your worst and now look at me. I've been raised in Jesus's power, raised to live forever. So you see, Jesus defeats sin. Sin has no effect on us anymore. He defeats death, that last enemy. One day, once and for all, it'll be a thing of the past, forgotten. And number three, he defeats Satan. Who's Satan? Well, he's the one who rules this earth, at least used to. He's the one who, in every power and authority, whatever it is, in um, propaganda that pumps out stuff that, um, that makes you think that Jesus just isn't really real, or in all of those authorities that there are that keep people in chains, that traffic humans around the world still today, that keep people in poverty and keep the wealthy more unimaginably rich than ever anybody's been rich before. All of those powers and authorities, there's something behind them, and his name is Satan. A great liar, a great deceiver, the embodiment of evil and darkness. He's not the equal of Jesus, by the way, but he does have great power. And he goes around the world trying to keep people with their eyes turned away from God, trying to keep people in chains of gloomy darkness, trying to keep them in temptation so they keep on sinning and keep on being afraid of death. And then when they do sin, he comes along with accusations and he says, God could never love you. Look at what you've done. Look at who you are. He comes with accusations. He comes with lies. He comes along with all sorts of strange and mysterious schemes that keep us in darkness, away from God, that keep us eating fruit that seems so sweet and just turn bitter and rotten in the eating. You know what that's like to sin like that? Well, that's Satan's business. That's what he wants you to do. It's those lies about yourself and about God that he wants you to keep on believing. It's those sins that you just can't get out of the habit of, on, of doing. He just wants you to keep on doing. But Jesus comes and breaks his power. Because if his power is in lying to you that God isn't really good, well, then what does the cross do? Proves that God is even willing to do that for you. How, how could God keep anything back now that he's given you his only son? What else is there to give? There's proof that he loves you more than anything else. He's given his own dear son. And now he gives us his spirit to bring us into fellowship of Father, Son and Spirit. He's proven that he loves us, that he's utterly trustworthy, that even when we're his enemies and want nothing to do with him, he'll still love us, still 
go to great lengths to win back his people for himself, to raid Satan's dominion, to invade this dark world, this dark territory, to take the ring of power into the heart of the mountain, cast it into the fire and have done with it, crush the evil one once and for all. Jesus is the one, he's the Frodo Baggins, if you know that story, who bears the crushing weight of that task of going into the heart of darkness and smashing it from within. Satan does his worst. He comes to us with lies. He comes to us with accusations and says, you've done that, you deserve hell. And we do, he's right. Until Jesus takes hell for us, until Jesus takes death for us, washes that sin away and then Satan's got nothing on you. Absolutely nothing, no more accusations, no more lies, just wandering around with his teeth pulled out, trying to act big, trying to act scary, trying to, trying to make people believe that God doesn't still love him, but it's not true. And if you were to just look to Christ, you would see it. You see, Satan's being defeated. He still prowls around like a roaring lion, but his teeth are pulled. You can't really do anything if you are safe with Jesus and looking to him. So do you see, Jesus has defeated sin taken it away, sunk it into the seas, defeated death, smashed through it out the other side, retired him into the corner of a lonely pub with a scythe with no blade on it anymore. And he's pulled out Satan's teeth. Satan did his worst and had his head kicked in by Jesus, the victorious conquering king on the cross. Isn't that good news? Isn't that something worth saying hallelujah for? Breathing a sigh of relief for? Isn't that something that gives you great confidence to go and live for him? It's not just future hope that gives us, right? Carry on that reading from verse 58. Well, 57, thanks be to God. He's given us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, stand firm. Keep on believing. Keep trusting. Be faithful. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Be faithful and be fruitful. This is what we do with the knowledge of the resurrection. We hold on to it. We cling on to it. And we give ourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labor is not in vain. There's another world coming where God is going to take all of our work done by his strength in this world and make it come to fruition in the next. All these things that you hope for and desire, that you've been working for, whatever your job is, if you're a doctor, if you're a nurse, if you're a policeman, if you're working in the cleaning industries, cleaning classrooms, cleaning streets, pumping petrol at the petrol station, if you're working at home, raising little children, changing nappies, feeding, disciplining, exhausting yourself day after day, raising the next generation, whatever your work is, if you're doing it in Christ's strength, you're doing it for him, well, your work is not in vain. It'll last forever because you'll outlive this world. And the good that you do, the work that you do will outlive this world in the resurrection. So you can work hard for Jesus, knowing that nothing that you do now is wasted if you do it for Jesus. Knowing that there's nothing that can hold you back, not sin, not even death, and not Satan wandering around trying to keep your eyes off God. Come and look to him. We started with that picture of the uh, the who, um, is it, oh, what was that, what was the album? It's slipped my mind. But the prism thing, where the beam of light hits the prism and splits into a thousand colours. Well, some of us are looking at that light, looking at the light of Jesus, of his cross and resurrection, kind of from a distance looking at it from the outside and analysing it like a scientist would analyse the prism and the light trick. But you see, to be a Christian is to be somebody who, who isn't just sitting on the outside, analysing, looking at it from a distance, admiring it even, but somebody who's stepping into that beam of light and looking up it to see the one, to trust in the one, to give yourself fully to the one 
who is the light. Can you see that picture? Turn it round a little bit. Imagine yourself in a dark, dark shed, a dusty old shed, and there's just a little hole in the roof of the shed. And it's a sunny day and you can see one beam of light cast down through that dark ceiling, through with the dust particles playing, reflecting the light. And you can look at it from the outside or you can step into it, put your eye along it and look up. Maybe a bit of a dangerous thing to do, but look up and look out and look to the sun. That's what you need to do with Jesus. Don't just stand out there analysing, thinking, oh, well, that's interesting. I suppose that's a happy message for someone else. Oh, that's inspiring. Maybe I'll try a little bit harder in my work and moral life tomorrow. That's not what this is about. Please don't leave it there. Don't just be an analyzer. Be a disciple. Be somebody who steps into the light, who looks through it and up it and along it, who enjoys, who basks in every color of the rainbow that's shared from Christ. He is the light. Will you step into it today? Will you come and know the power of his resurrection in your own life, that he would put your sin away and you wouldn't have to carry it anymore? That he would promise you life after death so you don't have to fear your death anymore and that he would crush satan so that you don't have to listen to him anymore come on step into that light look to jesus as your own savior as your own champion as your own victor and say with us death has been swallowed up with in victory where O death is your victory where O death is your sting thanks be to god who gives us the victory through our lord jesus christ